Before They Were Beatles, episode 12, A Man on a Flaming Pie. This is the story of how one of the thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence and at times just sheer luck. It is the story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1. January 1960. Johnny and the Moondogs started off what was to be their pivotal year in low-key style with a gig at the Casanova Club on the 10th. Still a trio, they played to a small but enthusiastic crowd at the Rock and Roll Club, which was located above the Temple Restaurant in Dale Street, Liverpool. This would be their last gig as a trio. A week later, John's friend Stuart Sutcliffe officially joined the group. It could have been John's powers of persuasion, or just the desire to get involved in the other side of John's life. But whatever the reason, on the 21st of January, Stuart found himself outside Hesse's music store. It wasn't long before he emerged with a large Hofner 333 bass. Legend has it that Stuart spent the £65 from the art sale on this bass, and that it was a light wood blonde model. A receipt discovered in Hesse's archives, however, shows that like the rest of the group, he signed a higher purchase agreement and placed a £15 deposit with the rest of his weekly payments bringing the total cost of the guitar to £59. And it also says that the Hoffner was in fact a brunette finish, not a blonde. After joining the band, Stuart threw all his energy and enthusiasm into playing and as a result his art started to suffer, much to the dismay of his friends and teachers. He hardly saw any of his old friends anymore, spending all his time with John. Several put it down to John being a bad influence, when in fact it was Stuart who had the greater influence on John and the rest of the band. During his time with the band, Stuart was often ridiculed by them for his playing abilities. However, as George put it, quote, it was better to have a bass player who couldn't play than not to have a bass player at all. John and Paul would generally make fun of Stuart on stage. John could be cruelly sarcastic. To quote John, we'd tell Stuart he couldn't sit with us or eat with us. We'd tell him to go away, and he often did. Stuart's mother Millie recalled that, when Stuart asked John to teach him how to play the bass, John replied, It takes me all the time to teach myself. I hardly know two chords. I'm guessing as I go. So he refused to help Stuart. In fact, John had asked Dave May, bass player with local group The Silhouettes, to teach Stuart, starting with the bass part for Eddie Cochran's Come On Everybody. But progress was slow and painful as Stuart's fingers started to harden and callous. The damage to his fingers also started to cause concern among his art college tutors. Despite the bickering and the apparent lack of support, John and Stuart were becoming even more inseparable as friends. The two were almost soulmates, almost perfect reflections of each other's desires. For Stuart was the bohemian artist that John aspired to be, while John represented the streetwise character that Stuart sometimes wished he could be. Part 2. February 1960. A lower-key event, but one that was to have significance a few years later, was the decision by Ray McFall, owner of the Cavern, to replace the regular skiffle sessions with lunchtime rock and roll sessions. 
The new spots were to be held every Wednesday through Friday and was soon drawing the largest crowds to the cavern, easily surpassing the attendance for the traditional jazz evenings. It would be a few years later at one of these cavern lunchtime sessions that Brian Epstein would see the Beatles in action for the first time. Part 3, March 1960 In early March, London-based promoter Larry Barnes promoted a show for the American rock and rollers Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent at the Liverpool Empire. Alan Williams, owner of the Jacaranda Coffee Shop, attended, and after seeing the reaction of the fans and being quick to realise an opportunity when it presented itself, Williams approached Parnes and introduced himself with the idea of a bigger concert in Liverpool, headlined by Parnes' acts with support from a number of local bands. Parnes was intrigued by the proposition and promised to contact Williams later in the year. At the time, Parnes was the most successful pop impresario of the late 1950s and early 1960s. He was known as Mr. Parnes Shilling and Pence because of his alleged reluctance to pay his artists. Brian Epstein also met Larry Parnes backstage at the same event, where he introduced himself as a, quote, local record store manager interested in the pop business. Also in the audience that day were Paul, George, John and his girlfriend Cynthia, along with Stuart and his girlfriend Veronica Johnson. According to Veronica, John spent most of the evening complaining in an overwhelming example of prescient irony that he couldn't hear the music over the screaming of the female fans. George was such a fan of Cochrane's that he used some of his newly acquired wages to travel to another couple of Cochrane gigs in nearby towns so he could watch the guitarist at work and learn his techniques from afar. Since he had joined the group, Stuart had been helping John in the search for a new name. They played around with a number of combinations that followed the traditional lead singer and a backing group formula. And as both John and Paul had been influenced by Buddy Holly, they started to look for a similar theme name to his group, The Crickets. Stuart appears to have come up with the name Beatles, B-E-E-T-L-E-S. Employing his talent for wordplay, John, however, decided to turn the second E into an A to make the name a pun on the word beat. The Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S. Over the years, numerous stories have developed over the naming of the Beatles. John himself was the first to spin a tale when a few years later he wrote an article for the first issue of the Merseybeat newspaper titled Being a Short Diversion on the Dubious Origins of the Beatles. John thought of the name Beatles and he'll tell you about it now. <laughs> well, I had a vision when I was 12 and I saw a man on a flaming pie and he said you are Beatles with an A and we are. John put this thing in um, the Merseybeat. Right, which was also started by Bill Harry, who went to art college with John, just saying that uh, this little guy appeared on a flaming pie, you know, in the sky and said, let there be Beatles, with an A. One story that seems to have been repeated over the years is that John, and possibly Stuart, were influenced by a scene in the 1953 Marlon Brando movie, The Wild Ones, where biker Lee Marvin utters a line in which he appears to call a motorcycle gang, The Beatles. That's better, Johnny. You know, I missed you. Ever since the club split up, I missed you. We all missed you. Did you miss them? Yeah. yeah sure. The Beatles missed you. All the Beatles missed you. While the movie was indeed influential with a lot of early American rockers, it is highly unlikely that it would have had any impact on John Lennon by 1960. For The Wild Ones was banned in the UK for many years and was not seen in the British cinema until 1968. The story is definitely one that grew and was perpetuated after the fact. The Beatles themselves have, to some extent, perpetuated this myth by including the relevant movie clip as the opening sequence on their anthology video series. Another popular story is that it was promoter Larry Parnes who suggested to the group that they get a better name for themselves, something like Buddy Holly's Crickets. But as they were calling themselves the Silver Beatles when Parnes first met them later in the year, this is unlikely. 
Despite all the wonderful stories about how this, the most famous of group names, came into existence, the truth is that John Lennon was still as much a Buddy Holly fan as he had been two years earlier when he'd written a fan letter to the drummer of Buddy's backing group, The Crickets. The name Beatles was a simple homage. Ironically, the crickets themselves are considered Beatles during their search for a group name. To quote them, We got an encyclopedia and somehow had got started on insects. There was a whole page of bugs. We thought about grasshoppers and quickly passed that one over. And we did consider the name Beatles. But someone just said, that's a bug you step on. So we immediately dropped that. Despite having come up with a name, John and Stuart weren't comfortable enough with it to know how it would be perceived by the public, so the newly named group played its next gig in mid-March as the tentatively titled Beatles, spelt B-E-A-T-A-L-S, and pronounced as Beatles. With a freshly coined name in mind, Stuart tried his hand at getting the groups an engagement, and in a draft of a letter dated 27th of March 1960, he wrote, I would like to draw your attention to a band, The Beatles, this is a promising group of young musicians who plays music for all tastes, preferably rock and roll, and it was signed Stuart Sutcliffe, and then in brackets, manager. In early April of 1960, the group had taken to rehearsing at the McCartney home. One such session, held in the bathroom to help the acoustics, was captured on a home tape recorder and provides the only permanent record of Stuart Sutcliffe's time with the group. The three tracks captured that day were Ray Charles's Hallelujah, I Love Her So, Lennon and McCartney song, You'll Be Mine. Instrumental created by Paul entitled Cayenne. Plans for the big Liverpool concert were progressing until Alan Williams learnt of the devastating news 
that Eddie Cochran and Jean Vincent had been involved in a car accident on the 17th of April in the west of England, returning from a Barnes concert in Bristol. Cochran had been killed and Vincent was seriously injured. With the Liverpool Institute and Art College on spring break, Paul and John decided to undertake a road trip. They eventually wound up in the Berkshire town of Caversham, where Paul's cousin Elizabeth and her husband, Mike Robbins, now operated a pub called the Fox and Hounds. The two teenagers soon pitched in, helping behind the bar and cleaning tables. And Mike suggested that in the evenings they might like to play a few songs for the customers. So for two nights, in the tap room of a rural English pub, John Lennon and Paul McCartney played songs perched on bar stools, strumming their acoustic guitars. For these evenings, they billed themselves as the Nurk Twins a name suggested by Mike Robbins. On the return from this road trip, John left his aunt's house to move in with Stuart Sutcliffe and fellow art student Rod Murray at a flat at 3 Gambia Terrace, about 100 yards from the art college. The group often rehearsed at the flat and Bill Harry, later founder and editor of the Merseymeet newspaper and author of several Beatles books, was a regular visitor. Also a regular overnight visitor was John's girlfriend Cynthia, who used to cover her absences from home by telling her mother that she was staying with her good friend Phyllis. The Jacaranda had now become the regular haunt for all the art college students, and given Alan Williams' interest in the burgeoning rock scene, he had also encouraged as many of the local bands to play there as well. John, Stuart, Paul and George were now regulars at the coffee bar. In fact, during this time, Alan Williams asked Stuart to paint some murals in the bar. Stuart and Rod Murray helped, although years later Alan Williams claimed it was Stuart and John. Although he was a big admirer of Stuart's artistic skill and general bohemian attitude, Williams made several disparaging marks about the group's musical talent and the fact that they weren't getting anywhere. To which John challenged him, well, why don't you do something for us? So Alan Williams agreed to manage the group. To quote John, he was a great bloke, a good motivator, perfect for us at that time. One of the first things he did as a manager was suggest that they go for a more pop type of name. And he suggested Long John and the Silver Beatles. His suggestion was greeted with howls of derisive laughter, but a compromise was reached and the band would now perform under the name The Silver Beatles, spelt B-E-E-T-L-E-S. In our next episode, Ringo gives up the day job while the Silver Beatles find another drummer, fail a major audition, but still end up going on their first tour. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Quarrymen, In Spite of All the Danger, Eddie Cochran, Come On Everybody, The Crickets, I Fought the Law, and The Beatles with Stuart Sutcliffe, Hallelujah, I Love Her So, You'll Be Mine, and Kayan. You'll find full versions of the music heard in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll add a link in the show notes. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, writer and producer, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love.
Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrant Entertainment, a division of 4Js Group, LLC.